Hello and welcome to the Curious Clubhouse Podcast. If you're new to this podcast, this is a weekly podcast where I, your host, Jason, take you on a brief, informative journey into a specific subject or topic that has helped shape and influence today's pop culture. This week on the Curious Clubhouse, we're diving into our next iconic book series, that being the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, we have a lot of new segments this week, uh, deviating a little bit from our normal format, uh, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, we're in for a uh, pretty long episode, uh, so pop in those earbuds, relax, uh, and we will take you on a journey, tell you a bit about what the Chronicles of Narnia is. As always, we'll talk about the origins and inspirations behind this iconic book series. Uh, The first of several new segments of this week, the first one I am calling A Curious Truth, where we'll discuss the deeper meaning behind the Chronicles of Narnia and how it relates to Christ and Christianity. Also, I have a segment called Curious Influences, where we'll touch on some of the negativity or not negativity, excuse me, where we'll touch on some of the various influences and the various ways that the Chronicles of Narnia have influenced other properties of pop culture. And our other new segment is called Curious Criticisms, where we'll talk about some of the negativity surrounding the Chronicles of Narnia series and how some people tend to disagree with its deeper message. And finally, we'll end things as usual with our Curious and Unusual Facts portion of the episode. So without further ado, let's dive in here and let's get curious. So what is The Chronicles of Narnia? Well, The Chronicles of Narnia is a series of seven high fantasy novels by British author C.S. Lewis, illustrated by Pauline Baines and originally published between 1950 and 1956. The series is set in the fictional realm of Narnia, a fantasy world of magic, mythical beasts, and talking animals. It narrates the adventures of various children who play central roles in the unfolding history of the Narnian world, except in the horse and his boy. The protagonists are still children from the real world who are magically transported to Narnia, where they are sometimes called upon by the lion Aslan to protect Narnia from evil. The books span the entire history of Narnia, from its creation and the magician's nephew to its eventual destruction in the last battle. The Chronicles of Narnia is considered a classic of children's literature and is Lewis's best-selling work, having sold over 100 million copies in 47 languages. That is an astounding number. Uh, yes, this this series is very expansive. Um, it's very detailed and very deep. It's very rich in its world building. And that in of itself is probably one of my all-time favorite things about the Chronicles of Narnia series. I haven't, I haven't read the series in many years. Uh, my older brother, Bruce, he has read the series in its entirety. And I can speak, um, you know, based on some of the things that he's told me, you know, he was surprised by the ending of the series, you know, without going into spoilers. Um, you know, I won't, I won't go into too much here, but he was very surprised by it. Apparently it's, you know, it's very deep. Uh, it's very sad. It's very emotional. Um, so it's, but it's a fantastic series and it's a good, and it's a good series for kids to get into a lot of monsters, a lot of creatures, a lot of fantasy. Um, but you know, just kind of a brief overview. That's what the Chronicles of Narnia is. Um, again, it's a very expansive series, but if you love, uh, a good long story, rich in fantasy and magic and just rich in world building, then I highly recommend you check out the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it is definitely a, a magical journey for sure. Uh, and it definitely does not disappoint, especially if you're fans of series like The Golden Compass or Harry Potter, uh, you know, then The Chronicles of Narnia, it is right up your alley uh, for sure. But now that we know a bit about what it is, uh, let's now talk about some of the origins and inspirations behind this iconic franchise and tell you a bit about how this series came about. Uh, getting into this here. Although Lewis originally published, or excuse me, originally conceived what would become the Chronicles of Narnia in 1939, the picture of a fawn with parcels in a snowy wood has a history dating to 1914. He did not finish writing the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, until 1949. 
the magician's nephew, the penultimate book to be published, but the last to be written, was completed in 1954. Lewis did not write the books in order in which they were originally published, nor were they published in their current chronological order of presentation. The original illustrator, Pauline Baines, created pen and ink drawings for the Narnia books that are still used in the editions published today. Lewis was awarded the 1956 Carnegie Medal for The Last Battle, the final book in the saga. The series was first referred to as The Chronicles of Narnia by fellow children's author Roger Lancelin Green in March of 1951. After he had read and discussed with Lewis his recently completed fourth book, The Silver Chair, originally entitled Night Under Narnia. Lewis described the origin of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in an essay entitled It All Began with a Picture. The lion all began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and a parcel in a snowy wood. The picture has been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day, when I was about 40, I said to myself, let's try to make a story about it. Shortly before the start of World War II, many children were evacuated to the English countryside in anticipation of attacks on London and other major, major urban areas by Nazi Germany. As a result, on September 2, 1939, three schoolgirls named Margaret, Mary, and Catherine came to live at the Kilns in Risinghurst. Lewis's home, three miles east of Oxford city center. Lewis later suggested that the experience gave him a new appreciation of children, and in late September, he began a children's story on an odd sheet of paper, which has survived as part of another manuscript. And just pausing for a second here, the fact that that piece of paper actually survived as a part of another manuscript is, again, pretty amazing to me, you know, because things from that era, especially with it being so long ago. I'm surprised personally that that did survive, but I'm so glad that it did because again, it led to us having one of the most amazing epic fantasy series ever made in my opinion. Uh, continuing on, this book is about four children whose names were Anne, Martin, Rose, and Peter. But it is most about Peter, who was the youngest. They all had to go away from London suddenly because of the air raids and because their father, who was in the army, had gone off to the war and mother was doing some kind of war work. They were sent to stay with a kind of relation of mother's, who was a very old professor who lived all by himself in the country. In It All Began With a Picture, C.S. Lewis continues, At first, I had very little idea of how the story would go, but then suddenly, Aslan came bounding into it. I think I had been having a good many dreams of lions about that time. Apart from that, I don't know where the lion came from or why he came. But once he was there, he pulled the whole story together, and soon he pulled the six other Narnia stories in after him. Although Lewis pleaded ignorance about the source of his inspiration for Aslan, Jared Lobdell, digging into Lewis's history to explore the making of the series, suggests Charles Williams' 1931 novel, The Place of the Lion, as a likely influence. The manuscript for The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe was completed by the end of March of 1949. Uh, so that's just a bit about uh, some speculation of where the concept for the start of the series came from. Uh, you know, as as I mentioned there, that 1931 novel, The Place of the Lion, as some likely influence for the start of the series, uh, definitely makes sense, you know, especially in regards to The Place of the Lion, the title. Um, so I can definitely see where he would kind of get that, the idea that that played a part in the creation of the start of the series. But then also looking at Aslan, and Aslan, if you don't know who he is, you know, as I mentioned, he is the lion. You know, he is the central uh, power of the series, you know, and he's kind of, he basically is, he's God, basically, for, you know, for, for want of a better terminology. Aslan is a representation of God in Narnia. And then, of course, the White Witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, she is kind of portrayed as the devil. You know, she is a symbol, symbology of the devil. And, you know, we'll touch on that a little bit later on in the episode, but I just kind of wanted to make that clear. So it's very interesting that Aslan 
is kind of the center point or one of the center points to the creation of the entire Narnia series. And as you start to read it and you get a feel for Aslan and his character, you know, it, you can definitely tell that he is the center point of the series. But it's just nice to know that Aslan was kind of thought of first and the rest of the world was kind of built around him. Uh, so really interesting stuff there. Uh, but now I want to tell you a bit about the name Narnia and kind of where that name comes from and kind of how it led to the name of the Chronicles of Narnia. Some really fascinating stuff here. The name Narnia is based on Narni, Italy written in Latin as Narnia. Green wrote, when Walter Hooper asked where he found the word Narnia, Lewis showed him Murray's small classical atlas, Edie G.B. Grundy in 1904, which he acquired when he was reading the classics with Mr. William T. Kirkpatrick at Great Bookham from 1914 and 1917. On plate 8 of the atlas is a map of ancient Italy. Lewis had undis underscored the name of a little town called Narnia, simply because he liked the sound of it. Narnia, or Narni in Italian, is the Umbria halfway between Rome and Assisi. So they, yeah, just just a little curious, uh, you know, little anecdote there of, of how Lewis came up with the name of Narnia, you know, and kind of how it ultimately helped lead to the title of the series that we have today. Uh, some, some interesting stuff there. Uh, but now that we know a bit about how the series came about and where some of the inspiration and influence influence came from for this iconic series let's now touch on our new seg our first new segment of the week that again i'm calling a curious truth and this in this segment we'll kind of talk about the deeper meaning behind the story of the chronicles of narnia you know as i mentioned previously the main focal point of the series of Narnia is that lion aslan and he kind of represents god so now i want to kind of talk about how the series touches on you know, Christianity and how Aslan kind of makes that representation of God and how the White Witch has that representation of being the devil. Uh, so I kind of want to, you know, just touch on that and tell you a bit about the deeper meaning behind the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so touching under this here, the Chronicles of Narnia series, as mentioned before, was written by C.S. Lewis in the 1950s when he was a high-powered Oxford professor and perhaps the 20th century's most famous convert to Christianity. An atheist from boyhood, he converted at age 33 to Christianity and devoted much of the rest of his life to writing about faith. C.S. Lewis was the great Christian apologist of the 20th century. His radio programs reached millions and galvanized a new revival in the 1940s in the United Kingdom during World War II. His books, including the Chronicles of Narnia, have been read by 100 million people, many of whom have seen a deeper truth in them. It is in one of Lewis's last letters, March 5, 1961, to an older child, Anne, that Lewis most fully explains his intentions for the Chronicles of Narnia. Anne seems to have written Lewis about a scene from chapter 8, The Healing of Harms in the Silver Chair, Aslan, Eustace, and Jill are in Aslan's country, and they have just witnessed the restoration of the dead King Caspian to full life and youthful vigor. Jill cannot understand what she has just seen, so Aslan explains that Caspian had died, and so had he. As C.S. Lewis wrote, what Aslan meant when he said he had died is in one sense plain enough. Read the earlier book in this series called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you will find the full story of how he was killed by the White Witch and came to life again. When you have read that, I think you will probably see that there is a deeper meaning behind it. The whole Narnia story is, ba is about Christ. That is to say, I asked myself, Supporting, supposing that there really was a world like Narnia, and supposing it had, like our world, gone wrong, and supposing Christ wanted to go into that world and save it, as he did ours, what might have happened? The stories are my answers. Since Narnia is a world of talking beasts, I thought he would become a talking beast there as he became a man here. I pictured him becoming a lion there because A, the lion is supposed to be the king of beasts, B, Christ is called the Lion of Judith in the Bible. C, I'd been having strange dreams about lions when I began writing the work. The whole series works out like this. The magician's nephew... 
tells the creation and how evil entered Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Crucifixion and Resurrection, Prince Caspian, Restoration of the True Religion After Corruption, The Horse and His Boy, The Calling and Conversion of a Heathen, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Spiritual Life, especially in Reepicheep, The Silver Chair, The Continuing War with the Powers of Darkness, The Last Battle, The Coming of the Antichrist, The Ape, The End of the World, and The Last Judgment. So, you know, as we've seen here, the stories are not just a good yarn. You know, they're not just a good story. There is that deeper meaning, as C.S. Lewis so elegantly lays out to us here in all seven novels. But needless to say, on the other side of the church-state-secular world divide, some people do not want the movie, that being the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie adaptation that they made, identified with a Christian message. They're trying to reach a broad audience and are trying to pretend that the whole story is just a good yarn. Frankly, we are happy that these people have made the movie, but we have also noticed that they have taken a hard stance against the real story of Aslan. It's up to the people of God, up to the believers to help people go deeper, or as C.S. Lewis would say, through his character, Reepicheep, go further in and go further up. We are happy that behind the story of the lost, after all C.S. Lewis once said, watered-down Christianity is nothing at all. We need to use this opportunity, whatever the secular world says, to present the truth of Jesus Christ. As a complement to the movie series, I have written Narnia Beckons, an in-depth glimpse of the life and ideas of the man behind the beloved children's book series. The book is full of profound, enlightening, inspiring and discerning information and stories about the book from which the movie has been drawn. Also included in the Narnia Beckons is information about previous television adaptations of Lewis's masterpiece, as well as interviews with some of the key players producing the movie and leading Lewis's scholars. There are also rare photographs of his English childhood, haunts, and profiles of family and friends. Uh, so a lot of sounds like a lot of really good information uh, in this book that she has written. Uh, you know, so it, 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 like I said, in its essence, the the core message of the entire series of Chron- the Chronicles of Narnia is the world. You know, the corruption and evil that resides within the world, and the death of Jesus Christ, his resurrection. You know, I myself am a Baptist. I'm a, I'm a God-fearing Christian. You know, I follow Jesus. I try to, my best to follow his teachings. You know, so I relate strongly to the Chronicles of Narnia. I love it. I love this story itself, and I love that he has taken this incredible fantasy world and he's brought deeper meaning uh, into the story, um, you know, by allowing us to interpret Jesus and God and the devil and all these various things into the greater overarching story that is the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, and I know that some people, you know, may not agree with that, you know, and some people don't agree with it. And we're going to touch on that here in a little bit in our one of our new segments, again, that I'm calling Curious Criticisms. In that section, we'll touch on some of the various criticisms that people have with the series being related to Christianity. Um, You know, so we're going to talk about that. But before we get to that, I want to touch on our fourth new segment for the week that I'm calling Curious Influences. And I want to tell you a bit about how the Chronicles of Narnia series has helped influence and possibly bring about the creation of some other pop culture related properties that we have some very popular ones here and ones that we may do episodes on in the future Uh, so getting into this here uh, lewis's life lewis's early life has parallels with the chronicles of narnia at the age of seven so just to clarify uh, i'm we're going to discuss how the series has influences lewis's life and how his life kind of brought out brought about the creation of the series. Uh, but I digress. Lewis's early life has parallels with the Chronicles of Narnia. At the age of seven, he moved with his family to a large house on the edge of Belfast. Its long hallways and empty rooms inspired Lewis and his brother to invent make-believe worlds whilst exploring their home, an activity reflected in Lucy's discovery of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like Caspian and Rillian, Lewis lost his mother at an early age, spending much of his youth in English boarding school 
schools similar to those attended by the Pevensey children, Eustace, Scrub, and Jill Pole during World War II. Many children were evacuated from London and other urban areas because of German air raids. Some of these children, including one named Lucy, Lewis's daughter, stayed with him at his home, the Killens near Oxford, just as the Pevenseys stayed with the Professor and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So yeah, definitely a lot of similarities there uh, between Lewis's early life and the Pevensey kids in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So can definitely see that inspiration and that influence there for sure. Uh, the next influence here is influences from mythology and cosmology, uh, which definitely you can tell that with all the different creatures and monsters in the series as well. Uh, but expanding on this a bit, Drew Trotter, president of the Center for Christian Study, noted that the producers of the film The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe felt that the book's plots adhere to the arch archetypical mono-myth mono pattern as detailed in Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Lewis was wi widely read in medieval Celtic literature, an influence reflected throughout the books and most strongly in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The entire book imitates one of the Amrama, a type of traditional old Irish tale that combines elements of Christianity and Irish mythology to tell the story of a hero's sea journey to the other world. Uh, and that it does indeed. So really, really interesting, really fascinating stuff. You know, I, I don't know if you guys, uh, you know, like to learn about this stuff, but I do. You know, I, I love finding out that books and things are you know the, the inspiration behind some of it is that myth mythology and that cosmology you know so just interesting stuff you know it, and that's the whole basis of this podcast you know to get you curious to help you know teach you know help you maybe learn about some things about some iconic properties and iconic things that we already love anyway you know if 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 we're already fans of this stuff you know we might as well learn about this because you never know what we might find out you know as evidenced here you know i'm always finding out about new things about incredible book series and movies and things that i thought i knew everything about well boy was i wrong <laughs> um so our next influence here planet narnia and this is really interesting michael ward's 2008 book planet narnia proposes that each of the seven books related to one of the seven moving heavenly bodies of planets known in the middle ages according to the Pulse Ptolemaic geocentric model of cosmology. Wow, a lot of big words here. A theme, Middle Ages, according to the Ptolemaic geocentric model of cosmology, a theme to which Lewis has returned habitually throughout his work. At that time, each of these heavenly bodies was believed to have certain attributes and ward Con contends that these attributes were deliberately but subtly used by Lewis to furnish elements of the stories of each book. In The Lion, the child protagonists become monarchs under sovereign Jove. In Prince Caspian, they harden under strong Mars. In The Dawn Treader, they drink light under searching soul. In The Silver Chair, they learn obedience under subordinate Luna. In The Horse and His Boy, they come to love poetry under elegant Mercury. In The Magician's Nephew, they gain life-giving fruit under fertile Venus. And in The Last Battle, they suffer and die under chilling Saturn. Lewis's interest in the literary symbolism of medieval and Renaissance astrology is more overtly referenced in other works, such as his study of medieval cosmology, the discarded image, and in his early poetry, as well as in space trilogy. Narnia scholar Paul F. Ford finds Ward's assertion that Lewis intended the Chronicles to be an embodiment of medieval astrology implausible. Though Ford addresses an earlier 2003 version of Ward's supplement, Ford argues that Lewis did not start with a coherent plan for the books, but Ward's book answers this by arguing that the astrological associations grew in the writing. Jupiter was Lewis's favorite planet, part of the habitual future of his mind, or excuse me, part of the habitual furniture of his mind. The lion was thus the first example of that idea that he wanted to try out. Prince Caspian and the Dawn Treader naturally followed because Mars and Sol were both already connected in his mind with the merits of the Alexandria technique. At some point, after commencing the horse and his boy, 
his resolve to treat all seven planets for seven such treatments of his idea would mean that he had worked it out to the full. A quantitative analysis on the imagery in this in the different books of the Chronicles gives mixed support towards Thesis, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the Silver Chair, the Horse and His Boy, and the Magician's Nephew do indeed employ concepts associated with the respectively Sol, Luna, Mercury, and the Wardrobe. Prince Caspian and the Last Battle fall short of the statistical correlation with their proposed planets. Uh, so, a l- lot of information there. Uh, honestly, uh, I'm not really sure I understand all that, um, but but I guess I, in a sense I get it. You know, I, I can understand how you could extrapolate. You know, based on the different planets, you could kind of extrapolate and define meaning in the various stories taking place within each book, as he kind of explains here. But at the same time, you know, I, I think it's a bit far-fetched. You know, personally, that's my personal opinion. Uh, you know, you guys may have, uh, you, know, you know, may be able to extrapolate some deeper meaning from this than I have been able to. Uh, and, you know, prior to uh, recording this episode, I read through this many, many times. But yeah, I, so I guess in a sense, yes, especially if you're into hor- horoscopes and you're into astrology and you kind of if you kind of follow that line of thinking uh you know and you base your zodiac sign on the various planets and various things as people do um you know i guess you could i could see where you could define meaning uh based on the various stories in each book and how they relate to each planets and and how they and what they mean uh me personally i i don't see that but you know that's not to say that it's not there uh, another influence here is influences from literature george mcdonald's fantasies 1858 influenced the structure and setting of the chronicles it was a work that was a great balm to the soul Plato was an undeniable influence on Lewis's writing of the Chronicles. Most clearly, Diggory explicitly invokes Plato's name at the end of the last battle. To explain how the old version of Narnia is but a shadow of the newly revealed true Narnia, Plato's influence is also apparent in the Silver Chair when the Queen of the Underland attempts to convince the protagonist that the surface world is not real. She echoes the logic of Plato's cave by... comparing the sun to a nearby lamp, arguing that reality is only that which is perceived in the immediate physical vicinity. The White Witch is the lion the witch in the wardrobe shares many features, both of appearance and character, with the villainous Duesa of Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queenie, a work Lewis studied in detail. Like Duesa, she falsely styles herself queen. She leads astray the erring Edmund with false temptations. She turns people into stone as Duesa turns them into trees. Both villains wear opulent robes and deck their conveyances out with bells. In The Magician's Nephew, Jadis takes on echoes of Satan from John Milton's Paradise Lost. She climbs over the wall of the paradisial garden in contempt of the command to enter only by the gate and proceeds to tempt Diggory as Satan tempted Eve with lies and half-truths. Similarly, the lady of the green turtle in the silver chair recalls both the snake woman Aurora and the fairy queen and Satan's transformation into a snake in Paradise Lost. Lewis read Edith Nesbitt's children's books as a child and was greatly fond of them. He described The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe around the time of its completion as a children's book in the tradition of E. Nesbitt. The magician's nephew in particular bears strong resemblances to Nesbitt's The Story of the Amulet from 1906. This novel focuses on four children living in London who discover a magic amulet. Their father is away and their mother is ill. As is the case with Diggory, they manage to transport the queen of ancient Babylon to London, and she is the cause of a riot. Likewise, Polly and Diggory transport Queen Jadis to London, sparking a very similar incident. Uh, So yeah, definitely can see how a lot of various types of literature uh, helped influence the creation of the Chronicles of Narnia and helped factor in to some of its greater arc and narrative, uh, for sure. Uh, Marcia... Daigle Williamson argues that Dante's Divine Comedy, oh, I like the Divine Comedy, this is interesting, had a significant impact on Lewis's writings. In the Narnia series, she identifies this 
influence as most apparent in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and the Silver Chair. Daigle Williamson identifies the plot of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader as a Dantean journey with a parallel structure and similar themes. She likewise draws numerous connections between the Silver Chair and the events of Dante's Inferno. Colin Diriaz, writing on the shared elements found in both Lewis's and J.R.R. Tolkien's works, highlights the thematic similarities between Tolkien's poem Imram and Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So yeah, definitely, can definitely see that, you know, now that I think back on The, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and really the series as a whole, yeah, there's definitely a lot of various literature, old-timey literature, uh, used as the basis for some of this the inspiration behind this iconic franchise really really fascinating stuff here in my personal opinion uh, influences on other works the chronicles of narnia is considered a classic of children's literature uh, so again expanding on the literature the chronicles of narnia has been a significant influence on both adult and children's fantasy literature in the post-world war ii era in 1976 the scholar Suzanne Carnell Poskunzer praised Lewis for his strangely powerful fantasies. Poskunzer argued that children could relate to Narnia's books because the heroes and heroines were realistic characters, each with their own distinctive voice and personality. Furthermore, the protagonists became powerful kings and queens who decide the fate of kingdoms, while the adults in the Adults in the Narnia books tended to be buffoons, which by inverting the normal order of things was pleasing to many youngsters. However, Paul Skanzer criticizes Lewis's for what she regarded as scenes of gratuitous violence, which she felt were upsetting to children. Paul Skanzer also noted Lewis presented his Christian message subtly enough as to avoid boring children with overt sermonizing. Uh, and I, I have to agree with that. He does a very good job with blending in a very interesting, very magical, intense storyline, but also subtly adding in the undertones of how it relates to God and Christianity without making it feel like a long sermon. He does a fantastic job of that. Uh, but just to kind of clarify this, I want to give some examples of how he does this and some examples of some of the various literature that the Chronicles of Narnia has helped influence and impact includes Philip Pullman's fantasy series, His Dark Materials, is seen as a response to the Chronicles. Pullman is a self-described atheist who wholly rejects the spiritual themes that permeate the Chronicles, yet his series nonetheless addresses many of the same issues and introduces some similar character types, including talking animals. In another parallel, the first book's in each series, Pullman's Northern Lights and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe both open with a young girl hiding in a wardrobe. So yeah, definitely some very similar parallels between Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass, his Dark Materials series, uh, you know, as well as how they relate to um, his his series in the Chronicles of Narnia. So you know, and I, and I find it fascinating that Pullman, being an atheist. Uh, you know, though he dislikes the Christian undertones and the meaning conveyed in that series, was still willing to pull some of the inspiration for his own series from from um, T.S. Lewis's work. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Uh, but yeah, so I just found that very interesting. Uh, but Bill Willingham's comic book series, Fables, makes reference at least twice to a king called the Great Lion, a thinly veiled reference to Aslan. The series avoids explicitly referring to any characters or works that are not in the public domain. Yeah, so definitely uh, definitely avoids doing that. The novel The Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine Peterson has... Sorry, guys, I lost my train of thought here for a second. Uh, here we go. Sorry about that. Uh, the novel Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine Patterson has Leslie, one of the main characters, reveal to Jesse her love of Lewis's books, subsequently lending him the Chronicles of Narnia so that he can learn how to behave like a king. Her book also features the island's name, Terabithia, which sounds similar to Terabinthia, a Narnian island that appears in Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
Catherine Patterson herself acknowledges that Terabithia is likely to be derived from Terabinthia. So yeah, very interesting, very closely related uh, stuff there. I thought I had made it up. Then rereading The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, I realized that I had probably gotten it from the island of Terabinthia in that book. However, Lewis probably got that name from the Terabinth tree in the Bible. So both of us pinched from somewhere else, probably unconsciously. Science fiction author Greg Egan's short story, Oracle depicts a parallel universe in which an author nicknamed Jack, Lewis's nickname, was written has written novels about the fictional kingdom of Nesikia and whose life is dying of cancer or whose wife is dying of cancer, paralleling the death of Lewis's wife, Joy da- Davidman. Several Narnian allegories are also used to explore issues of religion and faith versus science and knowledge. Uh, yes. Very, very interesting stuff here. Lev Grossman's New York Times bestseller, The Magicians, is a contemporary dark fantasy about an unusually gifted young man obsessed with Fillory, the magical land of his favorite childhood books. Fillory is a thinly veiled substitute for Narnia, and clearly the author expects it to be experienced as such. Not only is the land home to many similar talking animals and mythical creatures, it is also encased and encased or incest through a grandfather clock in the home of an uncle to whom five English children are sent during World War II. Uh, What a coincidence. (coughs) Excuse me. Moreover, the land is ruled by two Aslan-like rams named Ember and Umber and terrorized by the Watcher Woman. She, like the White Witch, freezes the land in time. The book's plot revolves heavily around a place very like the wood between the worlds from the magician's nephew in an interworld way station in which pools of water lead to other lands. This reference to the magician's nephew is echoed in the title of the book. Uh, Yeah, so several different books here uh, and pieces of literature have drawn inspiration from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, And this next um, book series we're going to mention was what our first episode was on, J.K. Rowling. Uh, Definitely no surprise there. J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter series, has said that she was a fan of the works of Lewis as a child and cites the influence of the Chronicles on her work. I found myself thinking about the wardrobe route to Narnia when Harry is told he has to hurl himself at a barrier at King's Cross Station. It dissolves and he's on a platform nine and three quarters and there's the train to Hogwarts. Nevertheless, she is at pains to stress the differences between Narnia and her world. Narnia is literally a different world, she says, whereas in the Harry Potter books, you go into a world within a world that you can see if you happen to belong. A lot of the humor comes from collisions between the magic and the everyday worlds. Generally, there isn't much humor in the Narnia books. Although I adored them when I was a child, I got so caught up I didn't think C.S. Lewis was specifically preachy reading them. Now I find that his subliminal message isn't very subliminal. New York Times writer Charles McGrath notes the similarity. Uh, he Charles McGrath notes the similarity between Dudley Dursley, the obnoxious son of Harry's neglected at Guardians, and Eustace's scrub, the spoiled brat who torments the main characters until he is redeemed by Aslan. Yes, definitely can see the the similarities between those two characters for sure, uh, and definitely can see how J.K. Rowling drew inspiration between uh, the wardrobes in Arnia and the platform nine and three quarters leading to the Hogwarts Express. Uh, yeah, so definitely can see the inspiration there, uh, can see some of the polls and, and the ideas uh, for some of these other famous literary works. Uh, continuing on here, the comic book series Packens Land by Gary and Rhonda Shipman, in which a young child finds himself in a magical world filled with talking animals, including a lion character named King Ire. Aria has been compared favorably to the Narnia series. The shipments have cited the influence of C.S. Lewis and the Narnia series in response to reader letters. In 2019, Francis Spufford 
wrote the Stone Table, an unofficial Narnia continuation novel. Uh, that's really interesting. I did not know that. I definitely have to check that out. Uh, so that's just some influences on other popular literature as it relates to the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, now let's talk about some influences on popular culture, uh, other things in popular culture that this series has influenced. As with any popular, long-lived work, contemporary culture abounds with references to the lion Aslan traveling via wardrobe and direct mentions of the Chronicle. Examples include Charlotte Staples Lewis, a character first seen early in the fourth season of the TV series Lost, is named in reference to C.S. Lewis Lost producer Damon Lindendolf, said that this was a clue to the direction the show would take during the season. The book Ultimate Lost and Philosophy, edited by William Irwin and Sharon Kay, contains a comprehensive essay on lost plot motives based on the Chronicles. The second SNL digital short by Andy Samberg and Chris Parnell features a humorous, uh, mediocre hip-hop song titled Chronicles of Narnia Lazy Sunday, which focuses on the performer's plan to see the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at a cinema. It was described by Slate Magazine as one of the most culturally significant Saturday Night Live skits in many years and an important commentary on the state of rap. Swedish Christian power metal band Narnia, whose songs are mainly about the Chronicles of Narnia or the Bible, feature Aslan on all their album covers. The song Further Up, Further In from the album Room to Rome by Scottish Irish folk rock band The Waterboys is heavily influenced by the Chronicles of Narnia. The title is taken from a passage in The Last Battle, and one verse of the song describes sailing to the end of the world to meet a king. Similar to the ending of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis is explicitly acknowledged as an influence in the linear notes of the 1990 compact disc. During interviews, the primary creature of the Japanese anime and gaming series, Digimon has said that he was inspired and influenced by the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so really, really interesting stuff here, guys. You know, a lot of various in inspirations as it relates to other popular uh, literature works of the day, like the Golden Compass and Harry Potter, uh, among other things. And a lot of inspiration was taken for other pop culture uh, properties that we know of, you know, like Digimon and, and and various things. So it's just really interesting to to discover some of this stuff. And also the TV series Lost. You know, I have not seen that entire series in its entirety because everybody that I've talked to said that it's not worth watching all the way through, uh, that it was a bitter disappointment. But the TV series Lost, what little I have seen of it, uh, that the last thing I would think of is the Chronicles of Narnia as it relates to that series. So very, very interesting to see that it does indeed draw some inspiration from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so now that we know a bit about some of the various inspirations as it pertains to some other pop culture properties, some various literature throughout the ages, now I want to touch on our final new segment of the episode that I'm calling Curious Criticisms, and I want to talk to you about some of the various criticisms that the series has received, uh, you know, due to its heavy connection to Christianity. Uh, you know, so I kind of want to We've talked about some of the good things that the Chronicles of Narnia has helped inspire. Now I want to kind of flip the coin for a little bit and talk about some of the negativity uh, because there is some negativity, you know, due to the Christianity aspect of it. Uh, so getting into this here, Gertrude Ward noted that when Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he clearly meant to create a world where there were no human beings at all. As the title of Mr. Tumnus' books testify in this world, human beings are creatures of myth. While its common daily reality includes fawns and other creatures, which are myth in our world, this worked well for the first volume of the series, but for later volumes, Lewis thought of plots which required having more human beings in this world. In Prince Caspian, he still kept the original structure and explained that more humans had arrived from our world at a later time, overturning Narnia. However, later on, he gave 
in and changed the entire concept of this world. There have always been very many humans in this world, and Narnia is just one very special country with a lot of talking animals and fawns and dwarves, etc. In this revised world, with a great human empire south of Narnia and human principality just next door, the White Witch would not have suspected Edmund of being a dwarf who shaved his beard. There would be far more simple and obvious explanations for his origin, and in fact, in this revised world, it is not entirely clear why there, the four Pevensey children singled out for the thrones of why they were singled out for the thrones of Narnia over so many other humans in the world. Still, we just have to live with these discrepancies and enjoy each Narnia book on its own merits. Uh, so I want to clarify here, that is um, going over some of the consistencies, the criticisms of the the consistencies of the story. You know, not so much the Christianity aspect, although we will get into that. Uh, I did want to touch on some of the criticisms as it relates to how some of the consistencies throughout the series. Um, accusations of gender, gender stereotyping. Yeah, so let's touch on some of the gender stereotyping of the series. In later years, both Lewis and The Chronicles have been criticized often by other authors of fantasy fiction for gender role stereotyping. Though other authors have defended Lewis in this area, most allegations of sexism center on the description of Susan Pevensey in The Last Battle when Lewis writes that Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia and interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and inv invitations. So Philip Pullman, in Philip Pullman, inimical to Lewis on many fronts, calls the Narnia stories monumentally disparaging of women. His interpretation of the Susan passages reflects this view. Susan, like Cinderella, is undergoing a transition from one phase of her life to another. Lewis didn't approve of that. He didn't like women in general or sexuality at all, at least at the stage in his life when he wrote the Narnia books. He was frightened and appalled at the notion of wanting to grow up. In fantasy author Neil Gaiman's short story, The Problem of Susan, in 2004, an elderly woman professor, Hastings, deals with the grief and trauma of her entire family's death in a train crash. Although the woman's maiden name is not revealed, details throughout the story strongly imply that this character is the elderly Susan Pevensey. The story is written for an adult audience and deals with issues of sexuality and violence, and through it, Gaiman presents a critique of Lewis's treatment of Susan as well as the problem of evil as it relates to punishment and salvation. And you know, just pausing on this really quick, you know, even if that's the case, in my personal opinion, if that's the case and, you know, C.S. Lewis, he had a problem with, with women in general and their sexuality, you know, you have to, you have to keep in mind the time period at which he wrote these books. You know, uh, people change. You know, people don't always have those backwards, outright negative views of the world, you know, and I think if you're just going to simply focus on the negative aspects and connotations and what you can take away from the series negatively, then why read it? You know, because in my opinion, uh, the, the, one of the biggest things that make this series such a great series is its Christian aspects is those threads that link it to Christianity and God uh, and Jesus, you know. But again, that's coming from me because I myself am a God-fearing man. I'm a, I'm a God-fearing man. I'm a Christian. So, of course, I'm going to see that. So, if you have atheists, for example, who read this series, yeah, all they're going to see is the negativity uh, in the series and not focus on the positivity. So, I can understand that. Lewis's supporters cite the po the positive roles of women in the series. Okay, so here we go. Now we're getting some positivity for the women, including Jill Pole in the Silver Chair, Aravis Tarakania in the Horse and His Boy, Polly Plumer in the Magician's Nephew, and particularly Lucy Pevensey in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Alan Jacobs, an English professor at Wheaton College, asserts that Lucy is the most admirable of the human characters, and that generally the girls come off better than the boys throughout the series. Jacobs' 2008 citation, not found unreliable source, 
in her contribution to the Chronicles of Narnia and Philosophy, Karen Fry, an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin. Stevens Point notes that the most sympathetic female characters in the Chronicles are consistently the ones who question the traditional roles of women and prove their worth to Aslan through actively engaging in the adventures, just like the boys. Fry goes on to say, the characters have positive and negative things to say about both male and female characters, suggesting an equality between sexes. However, the problem is that many of the positive qualities of the female characters seem to be those by which they can rise above their femininity. The superficial nature of the stereotypical female interest is condemned. Nathan Ross notes that much of the plot of Wardrobe is told exclusively from the point of view of Susan and Lucy. It is the girls who witness Aslan being killed and coming back to life, a unique experience from which the boys are excluded. Throughout, go throughout going through many highly frightening and shocking moments, Susan and Lucy behave with grown-up courage and responsibility. Their experiences are told in full over several chapters, while what the boys do at the same time, preparing an army and going into battle, is relegated to the background. This arrangement of material clearly commonly held interpretation that Aslan is Jesus Christ and that what the girls saw was no less than a reenacting of the crucifixion. This order of priorities makes perfect sense, and it definitely does uh, in that. You know, and that's what I'm saying. You, you. You may have some negativity in the series. You may, there, there may be some negative things that you can extrapolate from various characters, um, you know, and how they're presented in the story. But that's by the reader's interpretation, you know. But as we've just touched on here, there's also a lot of positive outlooks that you can take from these various characters and uh, and how they're portrayed in the story as well. You know, so there's two sides of the coin here. You know, you just have to. Take a stance and figure out which side you land on and which side you want to focus on. I myself choose to focus on the positive aspects and the pos positive ways that the characters are portrayed in the books rather than the negative. But I digress. Accusations of racism. So now let's we're going to touch on some of the accusations of racism in the various series. Of course, there's racism accusations. Why wouldn't there be? In addition to sexism, Pullman and others have also accused the Narnia series of phosphoring racism. Over the alleged racism in The Horse and His Boy, newspaper editor Kyrie O'Connor wrote, While the book's storytelling virtues are enormous, you don't have to be blue-stocking of political correctiveness to find some of this fantasy anti-Arab or anti-Eastern or anti-Ottoman. With all of its stereotypes mostly played for belly laughs, there are moments you'd like to stuff the story back into its closet. Greg Eastbrook, writing in The Atlantic, stated that the Holoramans are unmistakable Muslim stand-ins, with while novelist Philip Hanscher raises specific concerns that a reader might gain the impression that Islam is a satanic cult. In rebuttal to this change at an address to a C.S. Lewis conference, Dr. Devin Brown argued that there are too many dissimilarities between the Kalarmane religion and Islam, particularly in the areas of polytheism and human sacrifice, for Lewis's writing to be regarded as critical of Islam. Uh, you know, and again, it, it just speaks to if you're going to read this book series and you're only going to look at the negative, because going over all this, reading all of this, it just sounds to me like a bunch of people just wanted to be nitpicky and pick out all the negative things they could possibly come up with in the series. Uh, you know, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, you guys draw your own conclusion uh, for sure. Uh, Greg Eastbrook, writing in The Atlantic, stated that the Colmans are unmistakably Muslim stand-ins, okay, which we just touched on. Uh, Nicholas Wanberg has argued, echoing, echoing claims by Mervyn Nicholson, that accusations of racism in the books are an oversimplification, but he asserts that the stories employ beliefs about human aesthetics, including equating dark skin with ugliness that have been traditionally associated with racist thought. So that's interesting. I never thought of uh, looking at it that way. I, I never got that impression when I read the series, but maybe I missed something. Uh, 
critics also argue whether Lewis's work presents a positive or negative view of colonialism. Nicole Duplessis favors the anti-colonial view, claiming the negative effects of colonial exploitations and the themes of animal rights and responsibility to the environment are emphasized in Lewis's construction of a community of living things. Through the negative examples of illegitimate rulers, Lewis constructs the correct relationship between humans and nature, providing examples of rulers like Caspian who fulfill their responsibilities to the environment. Claire Etcherling counters with her claim that those illegitimate rulers are often very dark-skinned and that the only legitimate rulers are those sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who adhere to Christian conceptions of morality and stewardship. Either white English children, such as Peter, or Narnians, who possess characteristics valued and cultivated by the British, such as Caspian. Uh, yeah, so a lot of, um, you know, sounds like, a, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking at, or at least some people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, are looking at and nitpicking and picking out things that they construe to be racism you know, and, and things that they construe, uh, you know, to be negative connotations against uh, various races and various beliefs. Uh, you know, and I think uh, in my personal opinion, again, you guys, you know, my listeners, uh, you beautiful people, you might have different views on, on this take, you know, and that's totally fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Uh, but I just think that it's a lot of various people that just want to nitpick and they want to find the negative where the negative can be found. Uh, you know, for whatever reason. I myself, reading the series, uh, I did not get that sense. I did not get a sense of racism. You know, I did not get a sense of hating Muslims or Jews or blacks or what have you. Uh, You know, whatever the case may be, I did not get that sense when I read the series. Maybe I need to go back and reread it. You know, maybe I need to read between the lines. I don't know. Uh, But I just found the series overall uh, to to have good Christian messages built into the storyline, good value, you know, it's just overall a very great, uh, good series for kids to enjoy, for sure. Uh, you know, and they'll learn something along the way as well as I did. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to touch on some of the negative along with the positive, you know, because with these episodes, we don't always touch on some of the negative impacts and aspects uh, that some of these books and games and things might have or that people may construe that they have. Uh, but now that we know a bit about that, let's now wrap things up here with this extensive episode. We're coming up on an hour here with some curious and unusual facts surrounding the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, So curious fact number one here, the Chronicles of Narnia can be read multiple ways. Interesting. The books were written out of chronological order for the universe in which they happened. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the first book in the series, published, however, in the storyline, The Magician's Nephew shows the creation of Narnia. So yeah, they're written out of order. Uh, There are various ways that you can read it, which I find very, very interesting and very fascinating. Curious fact number two here, unlike most book series where the protagonists introduced in the first book are major characters throughout the plot, the protagonists in each book generally only appear once or twice as major characters. The only character who plays a major role in each of the seven books is Aslan the Lion. Curious fact number three, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis, was close friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, who authored the Lord of the Rings series. Tolkien was actually one of the reasons for Lewis's return to Christianity, which heavily influenced his writing style. Uh, That I find very fascinating. Uh, It's really, really cool. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan myself, uh, so it's awesome to learn that they had such a close connection, and he's partially responsible for Lewis's uh, transition into Christianity. Uh, Curious fact number four here, the books took Lewis more than eight years to complete. He spent only three months of that time writing the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, You know, and Again, I know that you, people are going to argue that that's not the first book. The Magician's Nephew is the first book. Yes, technically it is uh, as it relates to the creation of Narnia. However, it was not the first book in the series published. That would be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, which is why it's referred to as the first book here. Uh, so curious fact number five here and our final fact of the episode 
time in Narnia flows differently than it does in the real world. For example, the lifetime when the Pevensey children are in Narnia during The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe equates to mere seconds on Earth. Uh, yeah, so time definitely works a little differently in Narnia as it does on Earth, and that's for good reason. Uh, and it's actually good that it works that way because you could spend a, a long time in Narnia, you know, but then you don't lose barely any time, if any at all, when you get back to Earth. So really, really interesting there. Um, you know, and I love that. I love this series as a whole. But that's it, guys. Uh, that is all things on the Chronicles of Narnia. Again, this was a... Uh, a deeper dive than we normally do this was a, a longer episode than we normally do but i love the chronicles of narnia series it's a classic series it's a great children's series and i i just wanted to flush it out you know i wanted to flush it out as much as possible give you guys as much content about the chronicles of narnia as, as possible because it's a fantastic series uh, and i want you to read it if you haven't read it you know, I wanted to get you curious, wanted to get your minds thinking, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's fantastic. You know, I can't say that enough, can't state that enough. Uh, it's super, super great. Uh, but, you know, as always, guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you enjoy this podcast. I love doing this podcast. If you do, please rate, review, subscribe, uh, and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. You know, it's a, such a simple thing. But if you're on Spotify, give us a five-star rating. Uh, if you're on Google Play, follow us. You know, hit that follow button. You know, review, subscribe, rate the show. If you're on Apple Podcasts, write us a quick review there as it does help. You know, it is the number one way as of now that you can help me grow this show, help me reach new listeners, you know, and help get the word out. You know, along with just telling your friends, you know, tell your friends, tell your family, you know, help us spread the word. Uh, you know, because we're just getting started here. Uh, and, I, and I love doing this every week. But as always, guys, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe out there. I hope that you guys have a great week. And as always, stay curious.